Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boot Kalua. I'm your host, Anthony. This week is the second part of my two-part conversation with Valerie Garver, Gabrielle Story, and Carol Parrish Jameson. It is also the final podcast of season 12 of Electric Boogaloo. This week we are discussing a Sansa chapter, and this chapter represents the first real conversation that Sansa has with Tyrion. And it's in this conversation that Sansa lies effectively for the first time, which I thought was fascinating. At the end of this podcast, I include a clip from my other podcast called Properly Howard, where comedian Steve Osborne and I review films. And this is about 10 minutes of us talking about the new Jack Harlow joint, White Men Can't Jump. So if you want to stick around after this podcast is through... You'll hear the first 10 minutes of that conversation. In that clip, there will be no spoilers. Okay, let's get to the final podcast of season 12 with doctors Carol Parrish Jameson, Valerie Garver, and Gabrielle Story. Uh, Val, you're welcome to stick around as long as you like. Okay. I mean, it's up to you. Um, oh no i'll stick around okay i've got at least a half an hour so okay let's jump into part two so let me read my synopsis of sansa pov3 as sansa prepares herself to meet joffrey the hound hurries her once before joffrey she is made to answer for rob's treasons and the rumors of his dark magic Dantos tries to intercede, but Joffrey orders that she is stripped and beaten. When Tyrion arrives, he puts a stop to it and schools his nephew about the recent history of unjust kings. Sansa is removed to the Tower of the Hand. After a short sleep, Tyrion returns, discusses recent events, and tells her that he intends to dissolve her betrothal to Joffrey. Uh, Carol, let's start with you. What interested you most about this chapter? I was most interested in Sansa's character development, how she's using uh, chivalry and uh, and romance and the things that she so believed in. If we think about her tra- her trajectory, um, yeah. I'm thinking back to the tournament where she first saw the Knight of the Flowers, and mm-hmm. she um, she had all these uh, these ideals about what makes a knight, what makes a true knight, and now here she is in this absolute circus of a court, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I. Think- I think uh, Sophie Turner is a, a fantastic actress, but um, but 
this chapter really gets into her head and we can see that the discrepancy she's still playing the game of yeah. being the you know the the little bird as the hound calls her and saying the things that she know you know she knows what she would be expected to say but increasingly you know there's this uh dialogue she's having with herself and and she's thinking these thoughts about what's actually going on and we see her becoming number one very disillusioned um yes. obviously but she also i think she's using the things that she was taught um she's beginning to use them uh, in a very savvy way so i think it's a great follow-up to the chapter on Catelyn because we see her being very she knows you know well I'm always loyal to Joffrey that that's what she has to say to survive so what used to be yeah. a romantic visions now just become kind of defense mechanisms for her to use a modern analogy I thought total loss of faith you know sort yeah. of like yeah. in book mm -hmm. one she has she's a total just a total devotee of the idea of chivalry right in this chapter, she has lost all faith in chivalry as a concept. She has. And she's um she still has she's unwilling, I think, to see who's there really to help her as well. I mean Sir Dantas, obviously, but um I want to uh, hear what the uh, the rest of you think about the hound, but I'm a big fan of the hound. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I think he's trying to help her, but he doesn't yeah. look a way that she thinks one should look. I mean, he's scary to her. And Tyrion, likewise, is being kind and trying to help her, but she still has enough of that image that they don't look the way that she thinks someone who can help her should look. Yeah, I would agree, Carol. I was really struck by the exact same thing, is that she's completely disenchanted with what knighthood is. But she hasn't made that like extra step to say, okay, well, if knighthood is a farce, then who are the good people, right? It's like she doesn't yes. recognize it because she's still like working her way out of it. But I thought like it's a nice part of her character development. I've always thought mm -hmm. of her as the character who's like best developed across the books in the sense that you actually can see her change and she changes gradually in a way that like seems quite believable. Right. Um, but yeah, I was really struck by the same thing. So I'm really glad you brought this up. Yeah, I mean, she was just so struck by her vulnerability, and and uh, I picked up on on the same thing as you two. And you know, after uh, Tyrion rescues her, and she's just like, "Is it a trick? You know, who can I trust?" And again, there's a reference to her age being twelve year old, and even though medieval twelve year olds were very different to our modern day twelve year olds, that's still a difficult age to work out who you're going to be able to trust next when. As you say, you've become disenchanted. You've had your dreams or your interpretation shattered. Hmm. She notices a couple times. All right. She notices. If, I, I'm always interested to see how she's viewing the hound. Um. I think that what I noticed at first was she notices something different in his tone when he's trying to hurry her. And it's almost like she's sort of picking up on his nervousness. Like, he knows what's going to happen to her. And he knows that this is going to be worse than usual. And then when, you know, when she kneels and then he helps her up, she notices that it's it, it says not ungently. So it's almost like she's perceiving he could be rougher than he than he's showing. And then, you know, later on in the chapter, 
she's reflecting on knighthood and she says, well, Sandor hates knights. And then she says, and so do I. And so I think that she's kind of coming around to this notion that maybe he has the right of it. Maybe he's he actually is the person to emulate in this case. Yeah, and she also isn't it his cloak that she gets? That seems yes, like a significant yeah. a significant issue too. Is that I mean, it says something about the hound, yeah. but it also says something about Sansa that, it, it, like, in a sense, he's offering her a kind of protection. Like, and that you see that also symbolically. Um, but yeah, but she still says she has to walk on the side of his face that's not burned, <laughs> right. which is really like yes. striking. <laughs> like, oh. uh-huh. Uh-huh. it only goes so far, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she hasn't quite let go of the um, the superficial, I say. I mean, later on from her perspective, you get to see uh, Tyrion's face. And it almost says that she was fascinated with it. Then you have the, the view of Sandor's face. And so she doesn't she hasn't quite let go of, you know, that, you know, there's more than meets the eye here. But I think she's coming around to this idea with the Hound, at least. Yeah, yeah, she's had her um, her beliefs kind of completely shattered through all of this. I think uh, Lancel, I guess, has the the right look, but early on, yeah, he's disappointed her, and so she's really having yeah. to shift her perspective, and it it takes a bit, I guess. Same with Joffrey, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's been a while since she had any notions that he was handsome, but that's that's what he she thought initially. Uh, Gabby, do you have anything uh, in terms of like an observation or a question for the group uh, relating to this chapter? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about, again, Sansa's character development. Again, we see the glimmers of this here, and I'm just kind of uh, thinking, you know, how do we feel about her transition from that kind of helpless victim to a woman of agency? You know, what do we think about um, where she is right now? You know, 12 years old, she's been half stripped and beaten and so on. And, you know, what do we think about her kind of transition from this outset? It's a good question. I think this in this chapter, she's in that moment where that transition is happening, right? Where it's like happening in real time. She she isn't there. I don't think she's completely a woman of agency yet. But we're I think we're beginning to see those thought processes in this chapter, which make it really fascinating to me. Hmm. Yeah, and thinking back to our discussion of the chapter just before this last week, um, I'm also struck by the fact that she would have had Catelyn as a role model, right? And grown yeah. up seeing Catelyn like navigate this very a world that's very difficult for women, but doing so successfully um, in many respects. Um, and so I think it's like a nice, the two chapters sort of stand as a nice contrast to one another and that Catelyn is showing a kind of mature sense of like, she's going to exert as much agency as she is able to. Um, but then the, you can see Sansa figuring this out and Sansa obviously does not refer to this or think back to this, but surely her time with her mother at Winterfell was like pretty instrumental in her understanding of the way the world is. Mm. So in a sense, she's moving from this idea that she has from like romances and songs and things like that to a more kind of realistic sense that may be more grounded in um, her experiences, not just in uh, King's Landing, but also, you know, in Winterfell and growing up and seeing kind of other models for how women navigate this world 
Yeah, absolutely. And where you've just mentioned that, um, having Catelyn as a role model, I didn't just think of the fact that she's now got Cersei as the person who potentially look up to and be a role model, <laughs> you know, as a potential new mother-in-law. And that's going to be a massive shift because Cersei certainly rules in a very different way to uh, Catelyn, but that's got to be quite an earth-shattering change as well, seeing a very different type of female power on display. Mm-hmm. I noticed that she won a, a very small victory with Joffrey. Uh, you know, nothing to write home about. But the narrative has been that, you know, that he was ravaged by a dire wolf. And, you know, they, they build this, I guess Cersei says they're going to build a statue in his honor to explain the scars on his arm that he fought a dire wolf and slew the the dire wolf. But in this chapter she gets him to admit that it was actually Ned that killed Lady and not the dire wolf that ravaged him. And then of course he goes on to brag that he killed these helpless people who were just hungry and begging for food. But in the this place where everything sort of runs on lies, it's like it's like a lie machine. <laughs> um, she gets him to tell the truth, and I I thought you know he's not smart enough to continue to keep the narrative up. Um, he's angry and he's trying to display his his power in a very ineffectual way, and in his feelings, he's unable to stick with the narrative. Yeah, I think he exemplifies the dangers of a child king. <laughs> if that child right. king is uh, <laughs> is not uh, mature and prepared. And also kind of danger in like the wrong kind of myth making. Like I think mm-hmm. it almost is like an object lesson in, you know, like it also it shows that Cersei maybe is not so smart as she thinks that maybe this wasn't a good mm. story to try to tell, right? Like there's a sort of like, you have to have a certain kind of intelligence about how you tell the story and the bounds of the story. And this maybe went too far and the truth was bound to come out. But like, I I hadn't thought about that, but I do like that you point out that she gets him to <laughs> admit that. So let's stick with you, Val. Did you have a, a observation or a question for the group? Yeah. I mean, I, to me, this chapter really struck me as, um, this kind of contrast that I think, you know, um, you and I've talked about before, um, Anthony, about the contrast or the kind of interplay between book learning in this world and a kind of intelligence based on like studying and reading very probably best exemplified by Tyrion, but also kind of practical knowledge and where the two come into conflict with Mm. one another. And I think like you see this both with um, Sansa in this chapter, for sure, as we've already discussed, but also to an extent, you kind of see it with Tyrion, where at the end he says about Sansa, you might be wiser than we thought. But in a sense, you can see he has a kind of like respect for her, like ability to kind of navigate this world that's not necessarily based on a kind of like learned knowledge. Um, And I feel like this has been it's one of a, a kind of set of themes that goes through the whole um, book series about what kinds of knowledge are best going to help you. And maybe it depends a little bit on the person, but I was really struck by that and kind of wondered what, if that had struck other people that that was part of this chapter as well or not. 
Yeah, what struck me too is then she um, she manages to outwit in a way Tyrion by she manages to get herself back to her own room. Yeah, <laughs> because mm-hmm. she, yeah. and then yeah, he's he is a very smart character, but she she manages to convince him that you know she should she can go back to her own room. So yeah, so she uh, he's right, he's got it right, and then she shows us. In order to do that, she kind of has to craft a lie kind of in the moment and uses a bit of her own trauma to do it. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so she's using a kernel of truth. Like this room reminds me of my father's uh, horrific death, which is true. But then she says, I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep because of the ghosts. And, you know, I think that, I don't know if Tyrion believes it or maybe he just admires that she's, you know, she's able to do this pretty effectively, um, but it works. She absolutely gets herself back to her own room. And I think it like feeds into what we were talking about earlier, like that the tale that Cersei and Joffrey spin about the direwolf isn't working out because it isn't told the right way. There's there's like a hole, there's holes in it or something. Mm-hmm. There's opportunities for someone to call on it. But like Sansa, on the other hand, is good at crafting a story and saying just little enough, but just enough to get what she wants. Yeah, and I think this is also an indication again of how her character is going to go in terms of that she knows she now starts needs to start being a player of the court, and that means crafting stories. That means um, an amount of deception mm. in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talking about deception, um, I noted that there is sort of this mythology that's being built around Rob. Uh, to explain his his victory on the battlefields, and that is that he's using sorcery of some kind. And I thought, you know, sort of classic demonization of someone's enemies, you know, to put them on, you know, to sort of paint them darkly. Um, and, of course, this speaks to the kind of knowledge, a different kind of knowledge, right, Val? It's like yeah. this is sort of oral... I mean, it's rumor. It's it's rumor and propaganda all at the same time. And it may also be a, a kind of desperation to explain a terrible battle. Like I, this, I think that's how Tyrion kind of presents it. He's like, well, you know, your brother didn't really do these things. He just sent his direwolf in. Like, and Tyrion wants to use logic, mm. and uh, like, it's in a sense he's more the realist. And like, there's almost an acknowledgement. Some people will also tell this tale not just to play up Rob's power. But if you're going to be defeated, you want it to be for a reason that doesn't, that isn't about the competence of the person you faced. Hmm. It's that they had an unfair advantage, right? So it's also a way of te- the for the Lannisters to tell a, a good story of their own too. Right, and save face uh, with what was a defeat. I love Tyrion's. Um line about that sorcery that uh, sorcery is the sauce men spoon over failure to hide the flavor of their own incompetence yeah absolutely no i think i think that that's totally i mean and just sort of bringing dredging up something from the ancient world the ancient near east um it was every battle was peppered with some kind of credit or discredit to the gods, right? Um, if you won the battle, it means the gods were on your side. And if you lost the battle, um, it must have been our fault because the gods weren't with us for some reason. Uh, there's always an element of the sacred to these episodes of violence. 
and these battles don't just reveal who is the stronger army. It also reveals who is the stronger God in this case, or what, what did the gods will in this case? Um, I thought that was sort of an interesting parallel there with, with uh, the way that Rob's battle is being spun. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, we use so much medieval basis for Martin's work, but he does, again, as you've just said, bring in mythology from all sorts of times and places. And because we've got actually, you know, a diverse society in terms of having those differing religious beliefs and therefore that means we have got multiple gods we've got multiple histories Mm. and mythologies i mean obviously we have dragons like (laughs) you know (laughs) we've got all sorts going on there which is interesting to you know how they're all weaved together so i do have a question and anyone can answer this uh i think in this chapter we see very plainly that sansa is being treated like a hostage. She's not just Joffrey's betrothed, which, you know, is supposed to be sort of the courtly narrative, right? If Rob does something bad, especially bad, she's going to be punished. Uh, and she worries. She's like, I hope it, I hope they didn't kill the Kingslayer. Or I hope they didn't beat the Kingslayer because if they beat Jamie, I'm dead. You're here to answer for your brother's latest treasons. Your Grace, whatever my traitor brother has done, I had no part. You know that. I beg you, Sir please. Lance, tell her of this outrage. Using some vile sorcery, your brother fell on Stafford Lannister with an army of wolves. Thousands of good men were butchered. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. Killing you would send your brother a message. But my mother insists on keeping you alive. Stan. Sir. We'll have to send your brother a message. Uh, and then later on, Tyrion says something along these lines. Like, if, if we do anything bad to you, they'll kill Jamie. So, clearly, there's a difference between sort of the role that is being put forth and her actual role, which is a hostage of, an, of a warring enemy. Yeah, even, um, you know, she's um, so worried when Tyrion takes her uh, back with him, and she's so concerned. Uh, he tells her that, you know, she's a guest, but even even from, you know, this perspective, is she really just a guest? Because there is so much at stake, even though Tyrion isn't threatening her the way that Joffrey is. She um, she's an, She's an important pawn in this political game. And I think it speaks to like the situation of many hostages, like in the Middle Ages. Um, a, I mean, a, a famous example is um, the son of a this noblewoman Dwoda, who's a hostage at the court of Charles the Bald. And Dwoda writes him a handbook, and it it talks about things like you have to be careful what you say to people, you need to show proper respect to the king. Like, there's this sense of it's a precarious position to be in. And so you have to always, always be on your guard in a way that I think Sansa kind of exemplifies, but you can imagine like almost any hostage would have to constantly be running through all the lists of possibilities. Um, Mm. So in that sense, I think it's like, it is a nice reflection of what um, being a hostage in the middle ages may have been like. 
Yeah, and also, again, just for the fact because she is noble, she's got a very different hostage experience. Just because you're able to walk around the castle and be at court doesn't mean you're actually safe. You know, <laughs> right. obviously, she's still mm-hmm. very much yes. at risk. <laughs> And if we contrast her with Jamie, who is uh, who's the hostage on the other side, um, of course, it's a completely different situation. But he um, he handles it very differently than she does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here's a case where sort of we have this these blurry lines between being a child bride betrothed to the next king, living without your immediate family around totally under the thumb of i guess an oppressive power and being a hostage and so just a just a kind of a basic question is there that much of a difference between being a child bride and a hostage in this world not if you're a peace weaver and the peace weaving goes awry certainly not say more about that I'm, i'm can you unpack that yeah, I'm thinking about um, some examples from uh, from works like Beowulf, where you know peace weaving is so important to um, to knit alliances, and and so the bride is you know is sent off. Uh, and if um, if it doesn't work, if it's not successful, uh, this could be very very bad for uh, for the woman. Um, mm. Uh, there are countless examples of this in Beowulf, uh, not countless, but quite a few, like Freowaru. Um, and so you would end up being something um, of a hostage in your husband's home. And Val, I know you can probably speak more to this as well, but um, uh, the, the um, old English poem called Wolf or Wolf and Eidwalker, oh, yes. very ambiguous, but I've always read it or one reading of it is that it could be about a woman in a similar situation who's been traded off uh, in a marital exchange and then it doesn't go well and so she's possibly held captive what was the name of the the title of that again it's called wolf and sometimes the title is wolf and ed walker that's the other character um possible character in that poem oh okay i'll have to check that that's a great poem and i would agree with carol like yes it definitely reflects that and we also have like historical examples of this um they're not as clear cut, um, but like they've often been compared to these poetic examples um, where, you know, a marriage, you can tell has gone awry. Um, and like, I mean, I guess the one of the classic cases is like lo- this Carolyn Jean King Lothar II wants to divorce his wife, Thutberga. Um, and you just see she just goes through all kinds of trials and, and tribulations. Um, so I would say that I think, yeah, it could be. And it, it strikes me like I would have to like look ahead in the books to see if this is the same in the books as in the TV show. But I do think it, when Sansa and Tyrion are supposed to get married, um, he says something to her like, oh, it will be better now. You won't be a prisoner. You'll be my wife. And, you know, she doesn't, the, I mean, Sophie Turner, the actress doesn't say anything, but like, you know, the look on her face and he's like, oh, it's not really much different. Right. And I think that's, <laughs> mm. but I can't remember if that's in the books or not. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I think, yes, I think that it's a very difficult situation. So I would agree with Carol. Yeah. And Gabby has think... later versions. Oh, go ahead, Gabby. Wait, Gabby, before, before that, I, I feel like we should thank Val and let her uh skedaddle oh, thank you i do have to skedaddle uh, i do appreciate that and then we'll get back to uh, th- thank you so much and then we'll we'll jump in with with gabby again all right i'm sorry to interrupt gabby what were you gonna say 
No, no problem. I was going to say for, uh, you know, the in the medieval world, like marriage is not necessarily freedom for women. You know, it it sounds as reluctant as because effectively she's now passing as the property uh, to a new person. And although Tyrion is obviously very different to Joffrey, the for some women those lines between being a bride and being a hostage might not feel that different. <laughs> right, right. I wanted to ask about um I almost kind of felt like Arya was haunting this chapter. Um so when Sansa is walking to court, she sees these cats along the way and she's walking by the cats and some of the the cats have been killed. And I think that the implication is that Joffrey's been killing these cats. Um, And uh, then there's this little bit about the time that Nymeria ravaged Joffrey's arm. That calls back Arya. And then, of course, at the end, Sansa realizes that she's been put in Arya's room. And so even though... Sansa doesn't really, you know, sort of wonder. Like, I wonder, I wonder how Arya's doing. <laughs> she does, she doesn't really go there. But the chapter is dripping with Arya. Uh, it seems to me. Yeah, it is, and and I think we get this sense of Arya just being to to these characters erased, right? That she barely recognizes the room. Right. Um. You know, she um. It takes her a bit to place herself when you know she has to realize, oh, this was Arya's room, that Arya has just um, just kind of been e- erased from the picture. They don't know where she is. Uh, it bothers me that Sansa doesn't wonder more about her sister. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a very short stop, isn't it? It's like, oh, yes. this is her room, but like no concern, no, um, you know, kind of like familial wandering or whatever. And again, we see such a division between the two sisters um throughout the books until we get towards the end mm-hmm. so yeah i wonder it couldn't help me i couldn't help but wonder what does sansa think happened to aria like does she think that she's living happily back at winterfell do you think sansa thinks she's dead and she doesn't want to dwell on it too much because maybe she died with the rest of the starks i i couldn't help but wonder, like, what does Sansa think happened to her sister? The only way I guess I can justify in my mind Sansa's <laughs> kind of complete disregard is that maybe she does figure Arya's dead, so she doesn't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I'm giving her too much credit. Maybe she they just really she just really disliked her, <laughs> and it just isn't her concern. Sure. sure. <laughs> Why does Tyrion? give her so much information at the I end. wonder if he's doing it to try and show that she can trust him you know I think he's aware that she's weak and vulnerable and potentially needs an ally obviously Tyrion's not concerned about standing up to Joffrey or his father and we can see mm. from later on how Tyrion and Sansa's uh, friendship relationship develops so I think this might just be the beginnings of him trying to gain her trust yeah I almost got the sense that he's reaching out to her maybe to get information like like let me open up a conversation about rob and i'll i'll tell you a bunch of details now it's your turn to tell me a bunch of details about rob that i can use but to her credit she she really does hold her tongue right she she doesn't she doesn't 
get vulnerable at any point in that conversation. Right. I was looking back to see how he introduced the topic, and he said, you have a right to know why Jeffrey was uh, was so angry. Mm. Uh, but then, and but her answers, again, we have italics where she's thinking, you know, the things she's thinking yeah. and not speaking, and there are things like, Rob will kill you all, she thought. And, <laughs> but she says, right. my brother is a vile traitor. And so <laughs> she manages, you know, to, to get a good bit of information, um, I agree with you, without uh-huh. without giving a lot. And and that's pretty savvy of her too. I have a question for you, Gabby. I I'm wondering about all right, so when Tyrion walks in, you know, he says, What's the meaning of this? And uh, you know, he sort of chastises the so called knights who are beating this uh you know, this this defenseless girl and then he kind it's it's almost like his will in the room takes over even though Joffrey is clearly the king and I'm wondering if this I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about power historically with child kings yeah absolutely. like is this realistic that Tyrion would actually have the power to save Sansa in this case I think that really depends on your king I think the way that Joffrey's portrayed the tyrannicalness that's been ascribed to him i mean there's clearly little resistance from his knights from his followers in the how he in how he behaves and i mean Tyrion is a close family member Mm. so perhaps he's going to exercise more influence and control over his nephew who who knows he's still young um but there's a real sense that Tyrion is playing a dangerous game by opposing Joffrey because although he's a young king we know that Cersei struggles to control him and I think his when we're Mm. looking for historical examples we don't we don't have really evidence of kings this young being this tyrannical to kind of use as a counterpoint of oh well and then he killed his uncles and the Dex of Y and Z but, but they yeah. would typically have a protector, right, yeah. if they were very young. Would that protector serve in sort of a capacity of, like, hand of the king, or would the protector be more like, you know, like the king's guard kind of thing? And I, I, I don't even, I guess I don't even know historically if the office of hand of the king is just a, an invention of Martin's, or whether you have someone like that who actually governs the kingdom for the the, yeah, uh, the, so, the monarch. Yeah, so you have regents, typically. We get uh, protectors or law protectors. That's a bit more of an early modern or very late medieval concept. But you'll have a regent, and that might be the, the mother. So as we see with Cersei, so she's effectively regent for Joffrey. But we might see an uncle or a cousin. You might have selected nobles who are chosen to rule on uh, the king's behalf until either he reaches a certain age or sometimes if they then think they reach uh, an age of uh, kind of like decision making I suppose because typically we see this as around Mm -hmm. 15 maybe up to 18 is the age where majority occurs but until that point you will have regents making those decisions, whether to go to war, 
the matters about foreign policy, ruling the government, uh, mm. government ruling the kingdom, and so forth. So, really, all this power should be vested in Cersei. Joffrey should be learning about how to rule the kingdom, but he shouldn't really be holding that much power unless he's then taking up his majority and kind of pushing Cersei back from the regency. So the fact that he is effectively ruling like a spoiled child or a dangerous teenager, you know, um, ordering Santa to be (laughs) beaten and so forth is difficult because he's not he's acting out of the character of a king in many ways he's not being properly controlled by a regent he's not spending his time learning or studying Mm. the art of rulership and statescraft he's effectively being left to his own devices whilst his mother does the actual governing with the council well and there's It seems like there's no one in Joffrey's life that says, you know, you shouldn't be bragging about killing unarmed, hungry people like that actually does not make you look strong. You for some reason, you think that that makes you look strong as a king. Everyone in this room knows that basically you're just bragging about murdering a helpless person who who there who there is to say you don't look the way that you think you look. Only Tyrion, it appears. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Joffrey has just um, has completely gone rogue, and and yeah. yeah, Tyrion is the only one who seems able to um, to speak to him, and he's not, you know, officially the protector. So it, it's definitely a dilemma. I wonder if now I, I I this is sort of just a guesswork on my part, but maybe you could help me with the idea of um, are certain weapons seen as maybe less masculine than others and i'm wondering if like the fact that joffrey uses a crossbow would have been seen as well actually that's kind of a coward's weapon or that's maybe a less manly weapon than a sword or something like that well a less chivalric that you know that (laughs) uh and he's aiming not only this you know the crossbow an unconventional weapon at a little girl yeah or killing cats or killing hungry killing people cats, at yeah. the wall or whatever. I I was I was struck by that. It's like I I'm wondering if like like depending on sort of your status as a warrior, you would sort of use a different kind of weapon. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and depending on the kind of the battle, uh, the kind of battle as well. And is it the battle of Blackwater Bay where they want Joffrey to be seen and then he has to be <laughs> yeah. uh, they 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 pull him in and <laughs> Right. And clearly he doesn't follow he does not follow the rules and he misuses weapons. Right. As in killing cats, as in um, you know, yeah. prostitutes yeah. at one point in the narrative, right? I think so. I'm not sure if that's a show only thing, but Is that a show only uh, thing? Because I, I know I that Roz is a show only creation but oh, i don't know if there's a, a hint that he does that in the mm-hmm. books what were we gonna say gabby i'd say like building on that lack of chivalry i think just going back to what we were saying earlier about the knights and them they should be the epitome of chivalry and that's kind of shattered um sansa's like perceptions of that obviously you would also expect a prince to be very chival- chivalric and knightly and so on and to participate a bit like 
friendly in jousting and yeah. tournaments and all that kind of view. So right. I think that's almost a double blow to Sansa. Like the prince that she's hoped for is completely gone, but he's even gone even further than just not being a good husband. He is an unchivalric man. You know, he's not <laughs> um, fitting that role in any way. That's right. Right, picking on uh, young girls. And Tyrion even says, you know, it's a shame that Ren- that, that Stannis and Renling aren't 12-year-old girls. Then, you know, right. <laughs> maybe, right. maybe you'd have a chance. Right. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. Um, we're introduced to the Battle of Oxcross, uh, which we don't see on the page. Again, Martin... Martin kind of likes to tell us what the consequences are for the battle and not actually show us the battle uh, oftentimes. Um, another introduction, uh, Maester Franken. And um, notable departures, uh, although we don't see it, uh, we are introduced to Rupert Brax and Lyman Vickery and Lord Jast. All are introduced and depart simply in the story of who got massacred at Oxcross and um, show differences. You know, the, a lot of this was in the show, except for the sort of the post court conversation with Tyrion and Sansa. Was there anything else you observed about this chapter or wanted to talk about related to this chapter? Um, I might like to just spend a moment on, I mentioned uh, earlier what a what a circus this Joffrey's court is, and just <laughs> <laughs> kind of thinking about the, the, the stage, setting the stage. Da- Dantos is riding a broom handle or something. <laughs> right, with a, um, a melon on a stick, from yeah. <laughs> what I could gather. There, uh, it's just um, such a joke. Uh, Horace and Hobber, oh, I, in my mind, I always call them Hobber and Slobber. I mean, just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just um, almost farcical. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think Dantas is obviously meant to be there as the bit of light relief, isn't he? Because as well, but it is very representative to a point of having, you know, the court gesture in the medieval world and so on. But it does almost add to the, like you say, the ludicrousness of this court because on the one extreme you've got your prince who's ordering his knights to beat a 12 year old girl whilst on the other hand you've got your fool running around with a melon like again (laughs) completely agree carol like it's such a yeah it's interesting to kind of um i thought that it was interesting to contrast these kings and their courts you know renly has you know these men who are feasting and almost trying to outdo each other with who's going to be more brave in battle. Um, and then you've got, you know, contrast that here with Joffrey, who's, you know, who's going to entertain the king most. You know, this it's almost like this boy king needs to be entertained or else he'll get violent. And so Dantos is sort of trying to put on this big show and everyone, everything, everyone's sort of, putting on a pretend everyone's almost plain pretend for joffrey's sake feels like yeah, and then we can contrast that as well i think with with stannis's court which we don't see but we see him come out and we know how somber he is and so we get three very different perspectives right, yeah. right. and also a real contrast to what we see of the court in the north in terms of that is 
perhaps somber in a sense as well, but there's a steadfast sense of loyalty there, which you absolutely don't get through Joffrey's right. court. Joffrey's court is very much a rule through fear, not through loyalty. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Brienne will die for Renly at the drop of a hat. She, just just say the I, word, Brenly, you know, uh Brienne's going to die for for Renly. But you don't get the sense that the Hound or Tyrion or anyone would do anything for Joffrey that they don't have to. No. <laughs> um I did note that here we have Sansa almost sort of wishing like, you know, smile Joffrey, just smile. Uh, just smile and be amused by the fact that I'm being hit with a melon because that will satisfy you. Um, I I noted like Joffrey can't, he's almost humorless, right? He doesn't understand anything besides cruelty. Like he doesn't think anything is funny besides cruelty. Um, and it's, and it would have to be legit cruelty in order for him to actually be amused by it. Nothing that Dantos could actually do would make Joffrey smile. Yeah. Got a little little sense of, you know, you know, every now and again people will point out that, you know, Trump never smiles. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't like to make fun of himself, but he he does, you know, he sort of uses that old cruelty model. Um Right. Yeah. Just, just a, a tiny parallel yeah. noticed. Yeah, I mean, again, it's you know, politics shouldn't be about charisma and popularity but you don't want to be ruled right. by someone who doesn't know what a joke is or how to <laughs> right. enjoy themselves I mean, Joffrey, yeah, he thinks there's power in ruling through by fear um yeah he says as much and, right yeah he says as much and you know um you know of course Tyrion tries to counter that by mentioning you know the Targaryens and how that does not always uh-huh. uh, that does not work out but um but yeah, I think he's enjoying ruling by fear. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really feel like I, I appreciate these chapters even more having this conversation. And I, I really think things are ramping up in this. You know, we're about halfway through the book here. And I feel like the stage is set. You know, we're actually going to see a, some action now. Right. Gabby, thank you for joining us. This was our our first conversation. I hope it's not our last. No, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it, again, rereading those chapters really opened my eyes to some new things. So this discussion's definitely, you know, changed uh, perspectives on a few things. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, and and Carol, always lovely to talk with you. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I also learned a lot from uh, from this discussion. Can I ask, if you don't mind, um, is there any anything that that's available to listeners, like a book that they might purchase that you've written or contributed to, or an online article that you might mention? I, some 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 of our listeners like to know those kinds of things. Uh, yep. So I've recently had a podcast out with. BBC History Extra on Richard I and Philip Augustus on medieval masculinities. And I will have a biography of Berengaria of Navarre out towards the end of the year. Wonderful. Where where can folks see the BBC interview? Uh, if you search History Extra in Google, it will pop up. And I've got an author's page on there where they'll be able to find a podcast or on my website, which would be gabriellestory.com. Wonderful. And Carol? 
Yeah, I have a um, a book uh, on Game of Thrones that came out in 2018 called The Chivalry of Westeros. Um, more recently, I have an article that's coming out um, about uh, secular saints in Chaucer's work, but it does concern peace weaving. So it might have some interest to our conversation today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Steve, how would you rank actors who were once music artists? Top four or five for you? They made the transition from musician exclusively to... Yeah. Hmm. This is all kind of stuff that I could have prepped you with ahead of time. Sure, sure. But I, I, I don't. It makes for whatever it is we do. Uh, I I'm... mean, let me just say, part of this podcast is that you have this party trick. Well, it presents as a party trick, but it kind of goes into your psychosis mm. <laughs> where you just have this inexhaustible supply of useless knowledge about pop culture. Sure. Uh, so I, sometimes I like to showcase that. Yeah, it's funny. The first one that came to mind was Tina Turner uh, from uh, Mad Max. Uh, Thunderdome. Yeah. Um, yeah, and not and not because I put her in like the Pantheon, but like that was just like the first image that I got. Um, Timberlake's always been solid, right? You know what? That's so funny. I had, I totally forgot about Timberlake. And, you know, I don't know if his movies have sort of been critically acclaimed, but his work on SNL is kind of unparalleled. Yeah, I mean, he's really, really good there. Um, I've seen him in some some action-y things. I saw him, wasn't he in the social network? Um, I've seen Beyonce. Um, what was Beyonce in? I for sure saw her in the third Austin Powers gold member. Okay. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot about that. Here's one that I don't know. Was Bette Midler a... A musician exclusively? What was she... What happened first for Bette Midler? It almost feels like it like happened at the same time. She might have been one of those like, sort of Broadway people who kind of could do both all the time. How do you feel about Harry Connick Jr.? Let's let's do this. Harry Connick Jr. HC, HCJ, as he's called in the streets. <laughs> he does amazing voice work in one of my favorite animated films of all time, The Iron Giant. Mm. And is sort of overlooked. He, he's, he's the mother. <laughs> he plays every part. That's right. Yeah. No, otherwise he was sort of in, you know, like what, Flipper or some Dolphin Independence movie. Day. He was. He was an Independence Day. He was not an Independence Day. Yeah, he was. He was the co-pilot with Will Smith early on. Oh my gosh, you're so right. (laughs) Oh well, we're overlooking. We're bearing the lead. Will Smith. Right. (laughs) I guess so. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Will Smith. (laughs) I like how I like how my vision of Independence Day (laughs) when we're talking about famous musicians uh, turned actors. It's it's the Harry (laughs) Connick Jr. He was in there for like seven minutes. Will Smith may be top 10 action stars in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Did John Lithgow ever sing? John Lithgow was an amazing tap dancer. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. So of, of those mentioned, who would you sort of, I mean, well, I guess, I guess J-Lo, Will Smith, J-Lo right? would be up there, right? Well, she was a dancer. Uh huh. I thought she was a dancer turned actress turned singer. I think that's the order. Mm-hmm. It went. All right. Got it. Um, and then who was and the... Madonna is famously terrible as an actress. 
Nope. She was pretty good in A League of Their Own. Oh, yeah, sure. Sort of a supporting supporting mm-hmm. star, right? And then most recently, you've got uh, Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, yes. Pretty great. I mean, as far as sort of like holding your own as the lead, I suppose it's easier to pull off what Harry Connick Jr. does than necessarily what Lady Gaga did. Bite your tongue. He played a serial killer in a movie. Is that right? I believe it was Copycat with uh, yeah, Holly Hunter. Yeah, but he Hunter. was a serial killer in real life, so it doesn't really... Yeah. He's sort of just playing himself, right? Yeah, so so singers turned serial killers. Oh, uh, speaking of uh, that, Sinatra. Right. Frank Sinatra uh, was in several movies, none of which I've seen. I've seen no Frank Sinatra movies. Uh, and, and fun fact is that he was... Um, Originally supposed to be John McClane and Die Hard. Is that right? Uh, I don't know if that's what they wanted, but uh, the that's novel... a whole different thing. The novel that Die Hard was based off of was like a sequel to another novel that was made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. So like he had like mm. like writer first refusal. And he was like old still, you know, I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't... I mean, that's a very, very different film that no one watches. <laughs> Uh, Elvis. Elvis, probably the most movies as a uh, musician. Okay, so I would say that Will Smith, you know, if you're just going to measure acting career against the recording artist career, mm-hmm. I think Will Smith has the most success as an actor. He he had, he had, some, he had, he had, he had a couple hits, hits. He had a, but not nearly Elvis, right? Elvis. You don't think Big Willie style compares to anything Elvis did? <laughs> Elvis clearly was the, I mean, he was sort of a one of one. He was sort of a singular figure in the music world. And then made, what, 10 movies? 10? He made like 30-something movies. <laughs> I've never seen an Elvis movie. I've seen several. I went on an Elvis kick for a while. Viva Las, really? Vegas still, Viva Las Vegas still stands out. Is that his best? In my opinion. I don't understand why I'll make it simple, right. ma'am. Your motor's broken. Broke? But it was running perfectly when I pulled up here, except for the whistle. Are you sure you're a mechanic? Sure I'm a mechanic. I mean, you got here just in the nick of time because we're going to dismantle this whole thing. Completely. It might take a whole day. A day? Maybe two. Well, if you have to. Well, can you lend me a car until you have mine running again? Well, we'll do better than that. I'll be happy to drive you wherever you want to go. And why should you go to all that bother? Because around here, I'm known as your very bothering mechanic. I'm sure you. The are. song stands out for sure. Yeah. All right. It's so great. I love the idea that he's, you know, he's a racer who loses his money uh, wooing a woman because uh, he falls into a pool and his and his winnings that he was going to use to buy the engine that he needs to win the race uh, gets sucked into the pool uh, jets. And so now, you know, that actually happened to me. That, that this is, <laughs> yes, <so. laughs> did you have to work as a waiter at the hotel and then and then enter a talent contest to get the money for the? Uh... Yes, however, I was already registered for the talent contest. So, oh, okay, so just serendipitous. The motives are a bit different, but so <laughs> I think if you're going to create kind of a Mount Rushmore, I think Will Smith is on it for sure. Yeah, uh, Elvis has got to be on it just because. Just a volume? Just not necessarily volume, but in terms of like, he was just the biggest star in the world for, like, I think you have to measure both 
both careers against each other, right? And you could argue that it's the uh, movies that killed him, right? I mean, that's... I think that's kind of that he was getting to a point where he was like losing his credibility and he was just like panned movie after movie. So like he becomes a star, but then it's like, it just is, is kind of dulling the stars. So then he decides, you know, well, the only thing I can do now is do that uh, NBC special and load up on, on barbiturates. Well, let's not forget that he ate fried chicken every day and never pooped for a year. Yeah. Well, that'll get you in the end. Right. I mean, that's, I could do two months. Get you in the end is pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) so i think i mean those two for sure i mean barbara streisand i think yeah i was thinking babs if i'm pretty sure she started although i'll be honest i am woefully ignorant about my barbara streisand history yeah oh like yentl never saw yentl never saw the first speaking never saw the first star is born love i love the second star is born for sure Hello, love how we're talking about remakes, and we're eventually trying to get our way to Jack Har- Harlow, and we actually just talked about a remake we're with at, Barbara Streisand we're at and Lady minute Gaga. 10, we're at minute 10 of this podcast. I have not said Jack Harlow once. And well, I, you're not going to put him on the pants. I think, I, I, think right I get a little credit for squeezing this out of you before we actually talk about White Man Can't Jump. And uh, John Lithgow, was that the fourth? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, well, you know, write in cocoonsofhorror.com. Uh, that's actually not a an email formulation. <laughs> nope. You just do whatever you want. It's You're going to spell it wrong It's not anyway. going to get to us anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. No, cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. Uh, who else would you put on this Mount Rushmore? We're, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's let's let's complete it. Yeah, we'll figure that out. I mean, I think I think what we're looking at is that I, you know, I mean, Snoop Dogg has certainly made himself a little a niche, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's not necessarily like leading. If we're talking about somebody who's like a lead, he may not be that. Tone Loke was in Heat. Yeah, and he was also in the movie. He. <laughs> he gets. He gets credit for the song Wild Thing, which sort of de facto <laughs> puts him in heat, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and Henry Rollins is also in, in heat. That's right. That's right. Oh, man. All right. Huey Lewis was in some stuff. Yeah, I saw his penis in Shortcuts. Yeah. And I hear that's uh, not as aptly named. <laughs> So glad I started the way I did. What do you want out of a remake? Like, what are sort of like some criteria that you think? Well, I want you to be faithful to the original spirit of the film, or I want this character to sort of embody the character I remember, or do you want actual like plot points paralleled? That's a great question because I don't know that I. I think it, it that question assumes I want a remake. You're the one that suggested that we cover nine remakes. Yeah, no, I definitely think I because I think it's worth discussing. I'm gonna I'm gonna now go full Tim Robinson. I said it was interesting. <laughs> I think it's worth looking at, right? But I mean, typically a movie is remade. Usually, you remake a successful movie, right? I mean, right. isn't that kind of typical, or at least one that has. Uh, some sort of a nostalgic place in people's hearts. So then you go, well, let's do that again. And see yeah, you think can... you've got a built-in audience, right? Yeah, which is kind of remarkable, right? I mean, it's an interesting concept that says, uh, 
hey, everybody thinks this is beloved. Um, and because it, it's mostly maybe because of the nostalgia factor, let's redo it and put their nostalgia to the test. And it's like, that's is that a good strategy? Because no, then you end up like, having something polarizing, right? You have people going, well, I don't want to see a remake of this. I think this is great. Right. This is sort of like, hey, you know what everyone loves? Let's ruin it. Right. If you're going to do a remake and you're going to and, and you're going to get my attention, it has to be somewhat of a maybe a modern reimagining to some degree, right? Like or, it's, maybe you can get something where it's like if we can maintain the spirit, but now we now we have the effects that we didn't have before, right? Like 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 there's plenty of movies that we look back and go, yeah, I mean it doesn't hold up from a you know maybe a technological standpoint, but the story's still good. So maybe that you have an opportunity to retell it, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe the movie is kind of like a guilty pleasure you know you like it but it's it, you know like I, you can maybe say hey i know it's not that good but it, but there's something there there's some meat to it so maybe right. if you can come and you can and you can retell the story in a way with maybe maybe a more uh you know a deft hand that can uh that can, can, can pull out some of the stuff that was the was the good foundation but like now create a better narrative like that's what i think you'd want I mean, it happens. And I mean, we're, we're going to go over these remakes and we're going to discuss. And I can, I mean, I already know for sure one of the remakes we're going to go over is substantially better than the original. Well, here's um, what I was going to say. There's another reason why you might do a remake. And that is this film appealed to like children of the 70s. Mm-hmm. But children in the 2020s don't watch 70s films. Right. So this was a film that we were sort of aiming at a particular demographic that has aged out. And so it's time that we remake this so that we can capture the new demographic. And I would say that- and, and the story is good enough. The story may may transcend generations. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be tweaked. Or, or I would almost modeled. argue that The Force Awakens is mm. almost a remake. In that sense. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. And this is going to be, you know, heresy to a lot of people. But after rewatching A New Hope, I like the remake better. Mm. And it's not, It's it may have something to do with the ages of my kids and when they experience it for the first time. And I think A New Hope is a, a really amazing, iconic movie. But just in terms of storytelling... It's really hard for kids under ten not to fall asleep in Star Wars, um, right? So and, you know, I mean, your your uh, lightsaber battle, your big climactic one is real, <laughs> real snoozy. Right. Well, and look, and we we both have a lot of affection for that movie. Um, mm-hmm. I still think nothing holds a candle to Empire Strikes Back, but it's, in terms of a Force Awakens being almost a remake of a new hope. I think that was the spirit. It was like this movie was beloved by a generation, uh, that has kind of aged out and we would like to capture what this was for Gen Z or something like that. Um, I think that white man can't jump may be the same kind of thing. Because, you know, I rewatched White Man Can't Jump, the original, Mm -hmm. with Woody Harrelson and Rosie Perez and Wesley Snipes, and I think it's a better film. I I, I just enjoy that film more. 
the original, the original more, mm-hmm. and my son enjoys the remake more. But he did. He watched the uh, original. He watched some of the original, um, mm-hmm. which may speak to you about how much he enjoyed the original. <laughs> sure. So I think that the clearly the first one is a better movie, and yet this one is uh, which I I don't hate this one, and I think it it's it's a decent way into our discussion of remakes. Hey, they're letting yoga instructors in the gym now. Ball. I just noticed you're not getting enough legs on a new shot. Are you dehydrated? 100 bucks, you can't make more shots. Let's just do 300. It's not my dad's money. You ain't never gonna get a reparation that way, bro. So, I prefer Venmo or Zelle, but you seem like a cash app guy, so. Ladies and gentlemen, my son likes this one better. And who am I to argue with that? You're tired. You watch both. I feel like you have a, you have a better argument. You have, you have a better opportunity to argue because he didn't watch the first one. So, so just, just by virtue of knowledge okay. and, and experience. All right. So let's interrogate this a bit. Do please check us out over at Properly Howard Movie Review in association with friends of the podcast, The Lorehounds, John and 